like to say welcome to everybody. We have a number of visitors with us. We're glad that you're here. We hope you'll come back any chance that you get. A lot of times we say, members, you're expected, but as those of us that were here the last few weeks, I think a lot of people were getting in their last summer hoorahs on trips. It's been a thin on some services, and so it's really good to see everybody here. I think most everybody's back home, and it makes us appreciate you. If you always wonder, sometimes in a big crowd, it's easy to say, well, I won't be missed if I'm not here. You were. <laughs> the singing was really good this morning. Thank you for your participation in that and glorifying God with that. I'm going to do something I don't normally do, and that is I borrowed a lesson from somebody. If you were at the Brotherhood meeting, I guess it was three years ago, Brent Benoit gave a lesson about the government and the church's interaction and how we should respond to the government. I think it's timely. It's election season, and the situation's a little different than it was three years ago. It was a presidential election but the, the things that made it timely then make it timely now. I don't know if the scariest thing today was saying I borrowed it from him or that I really didn't change much. I took out a, a little bit uh, of legalese. The scary thing is he's a lawyer and I agreed with him. <laughs> I hope that you will consider these things. It's very easy in today's society to get things out of kilter. And hopefully this will... Center us back on the Bible, we will be able to see where the right place is with the government. How should Christians interact with the government? It's easy to see why it's on Christians' mind. Morality is declining rapidly in the United States. It seems like the laws that get passed are making it go quicker. The Supreme Court is adding to it. And lest we think that all of a sudden we have a new president from two years ago and he's doing exactly what we want, just look at his morals. It was easy three or four years ago to put blame on one particular party and think that now things are good. In two years, it may be completely different. And I think as we go through, uh, nobody can deny that the political climate has become so ugly that it needs Christian influence. So these all tug at our minds, and how are we going to handle it? Around town, if you talk about politics and religion, you get a lot of different views. It's controversial. A lot of people are very passionate about it. And my goal this morning is to go back to the Bible and identify Christian principles so that we can all respond appropriately. As we say a lot of times, we can read a lot of things, we can say a lot of things, but if we can't find it in the Bible, then we need to reevaluate our source for our decisions. And the Bible speaks clearly about how active a person should be uh, and how much we should worry about the government. As we think about these things, and you can think about, as well as I can think about, some things I have said that I have to go back and rethink. Because I've said, boy, how could someone be a Christian and vote for XYZ politician or XYZ political party? But no political party's made the Bible its political platform. They both have, at least the major parties, they have parts of their platform that would agree with the Bible and would disagree with the Bible. If you consider yourself a Republican, guess what? There are Democrats here. 
might not raise their hand in this crowd, but they are here, and they call themselves Christians. Democrats, there are Republicans. There are other political parties represented. So what does the Bible say about government? I'm going to go back to the very basic. Governments are ordained of God. Romans 13 and 1 says, Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power that be but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Governments are ordained by God, and we're going to see this word a lot of times, and I, I, don't, I didn't highlight it every single time, but we're to be in subjection to the government. That goes against all of our grains. When we think that they're doing something wrong, when we consider our independence, subjection is very difficult. It's hard for me to subject myself to you and you to me and my wife to me and me to her. But that's the attitude of Christians and it's no different in relation to the government. The following verse says, Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. So as we gripe and moan and complain, we need to consider what the Bible says about the government. We're to subject ourselves to them. Titus 3 verse 1, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers. Principalities and powers means the civil government. To obey magistrates, judges, to be ready to every good work, and then a number of other things. But the idea of subjection is continued in that part of the Bible as well. We pray it often, and I didn't prompt Andrew to pray for this this morning, but it was almost word for word what he prayed that there is a time when disobedience is, is okay and it's proper and it's what we should do when it affects our ability to fulfill our Christian duties. God is our ultimate authority. Our subjection is first and foremost to him. The example of Peter and John in Acts 4, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot speak the thing, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Peter and John knew God was their authority. They couldn't be browbeaten or imprisoned or punished and not fulfill their God-given responsibility. And just a chapter later in Acts 5, the examples we have of the early church, the early preachers and apostles, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The government being against Christianity is nothing new. Historically, I like to say it because I'm, I'm this way, most of us remember about three to five years ago with any accuracy. We think anything past five years ago, it's always like it, it's, it is now like it's always been. The other tendency we have is to remember the good old days when it was way better than it is now. And the good old days, uh, the Christians had probably worse problems than we have with the government. The scriptural authority to disobey the government is only found when we, we're, we can't do what we're supposed to do as Christians. And here are some things that, in my mind, that, that work on me, and probably I see it working on other Christians as well. There are a lot of things that don't fall under that they're keeping me from being able to be a Christian and do what I'm supposed to. 
our general disagreement with the government. That doesn't keep me from being a Christian. Our belief that the government is operating unjustly. Our belief that the government is conducive to moral decay. Our belief that the government is contrary to Christianity or hostile to Christianity. You know, all those things may be true, but does it directly affect my ability to do what God wants me to do? And I can wholeheartedly say, as, I, as you can, as of today, it doesn't keep me from doing that. No, I can't predict the future. We can spend a lot of time worrying about the what-ifs and spend a lot of effort and energy and get sidetracked, but we have to be careful that we don't, uh, don't let it get the better part of us. A good example in the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember, the king told them to bow down and worship an idol, a golden image, to bow down and worship an image of him. Here's what it says in Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said unto the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery, burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And we know the story. We know that God did deliver them out. We know that later, they were promoted in that very same government that had been persecuting them. And here's, we, I read all those scriptures about subjection, and I want to keep that thought in our minds. Because if you'll notice, they never had a haughty attitude. They never were disrespectful to the king. Daniel, in that very same book, he was subjected to persecution and put in the lion's den, persecuted. And remember Daniel, what he said in Daniel 6 and verse 21, after he had been delivered? Daniel, Daniel respectfully begins what he says to the king, O king, live forever. This is the guy that's trying to kill him. And yet he kept the air, the attitude of respect towards his king. And as I think about some of the attitudes I've had towards our president, that may be the one we have now, because there's plenty, right? It may have been the previous president, because guess what? There were plenty of things that I didn't like about him, or the president before that, or the president before that, or the Supreme Court, or any number of things about the government that get us all worked up. Sometimes it's very easy to be disrespectful. Remember, Governments are set up by God for his purpose. Later on in Romans 13, it continues the reading that we had earlier. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. And we get in our minds minister, and we think about church people, right? Well, he says that the government officials are ministers of God. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he bears not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doest evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject. There's that word again, over and over. Not only for wrath, not because we're going to get in trouble, but also for conscience sake. We know it's the right thing to do. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. 
Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. I guess that's probably our second favorite pastime is to complain about taxes. And again, we have to really consider what the Bible instructs our attitude to be. Tribute to whom tribute is due. They're God's ministers. In 1 Peter 2, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. The same thing throughout the Bible. Later on, for so is the will of God. It's the will of God that we subject ourselves to the government. As we read earlier, we're to pay taxes and other money owed to the government. A very basic teaching of Jesus in Mark 12. And they said unto him, Certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians, they sent them to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man, that nobody is greater than you. They're trying to trick him, obviously. For thou regardest not the person of man, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt you me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They have a place that we're to respect and to give them honor, and particularly to pay our taxes. We're told in the Bible to pray for the government and the governmental leaders. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. An intercessor is one who goes on behalf of. Sometimes our prayers, I find myself and I hear them, well, help these people to do the right thing as, as if they're our enemies. We're to intercede on their behalf with God to give them the ability to lead as God would have them to lead. Supplication is to beg on their behalf. It's very difficult to give thanks for people when we think they are against us. And our prayers can sometimes skip over the idea of giving thanks. We're to give thanks for our government. We had a little dose of what really goes on in other countries over the last few weeks. As we've had some guest speakers, and we'll have one next week from India. We live in our bubble and think things are really bad. Ask our Nigerian brothers. Ask our Indian brothers and sisters. The government is really against them. Local governments beat them up, burn their building down, prevent them from buying property. All sorts of things that make our government look like the greatest thing since sliced bread, and ultimately it is. It does not impinge, it does not keep us from being able to serve God. And we need to give thanks for that, even when we think that the government's going the wrong direction. We're going to read some things in a little bit that our government is a long ways away from what early Christians experienced. We should pray that we can lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. It means all government leaders. We're to pray for all of them, Republicans and Democrats alike. Here's what's 
the truth about the Bible. There's no clear New Testament example of involvement by the church in politics. Of the church advocating some change in the form of government. Of the church advocating a change in a particular law. Of the church attempting to accomplish any improvement in general morality through political means. Think about what the political climate was in the early church. Remember in about 100 A.D., Rome was the center of the known world that most of the Roman emperors made the subjects treat them as God and they made people worship them. Think about the, the stories we could read about Christian persecution. Christians were tarred and feathered and burned for entertainment. They were drugged from their homes and killed. Think about that environment when you think about what real persecution is. Slavery was everywhere. That was the way the world operated. Half the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. the government killed people for the other people's entertainment. There was institutionalized prostitution, deviant sexual practice by government leaders and the so-called religious leaders. Think about how evil it was when the Bible was written. It was not the good old days. It was bad, really, really bad. And yet, in light of all that, no examples of political action by the church. The church isn't a political organization. And what do I mean by political involvement? Sermons that support a particular political position. It's pervasive in our country that politicians go to a church and they get introduced and they give a political speech. Or preachers or other church leaders get involved in promoting a particular candidate. Church solicitation or encouragement for support for political groups. Raising money for the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Church sponsorship of political speech. Church organization of grassroots political movements. You don't see any of that in the Bible. It's common in the religious world, but it's not in the Bible. Here's some reasons to not be politically involved and to rethink why that would be a good idea. The church should not be preoccupied with fixing the world because it's not of this world. We want things to be a better place, but it's, and it's easy to get drawn into the mindset that somehow that's going to make everything better. In John 18, verse 36, a very strong underlying principle, everything that we decide not just about politics. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from thence. The church isn't a social change organization. It's a spiritual change organization. Here particularly, Jesus was talking about going to fight on his behalf with swords and and knives and physically fighting that he wouldn't be crucified. But the point is well made. And it's easy since we live in the world to get sucked into the idea that we're worldly 
and we're not. Politics isn't our weapon. In 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Our weapons are spiritual, not worldly. Our true citizenship is in heaven, not in this world. Philippians 3 and 20, For our conversation is in heaven, for whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to be ambassadors, not legislators or judges. In 2 Corinthians 5, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. We're the ambassador to the world of Jesus Christ. Think about all the people you know. Some of you know a lot of people. Some of you know just a few. But I would dare say if we added up the people that we know... It'll be 10 or 20 or 30 times the number of people in this building. We're ambassadors to them. Our job is to bring God, His message to them, to bring Christ's message to them. The real mission of the church, and we've said it over and over through the years, is to save souls. We know the Great Commission... And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. In Mark 16, He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Those are the mission, those verses point out the mission of the church. You know lots of people. From the front row to the back row to the back corners to the folks that aren't here. Our mission is to save souls. Our mission is to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to as many people as we can. Political action, legislation, general agitation, none of that accomplishes that mission. In Matthew 22, verse 37, think about the traits that Jesus wants us to have. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made 
unto salvation. In Matthew 15, This people draws nigh to me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The mission of the church is centered in people's hearts. It's centered in our heart, right? Political involvement. Politics don't do anything to get into people's hearts. Our mission is to save souls, and that's by changing people's hearts. I'm going to ask you to go back and think about history again and a few examples. Political action and legislation has not been particularly effective at improving morality. And I remember, I don't 20 years ago, getting into the argument with somebody or some particular, probably somebody I didn't agree with, saying you can't legislate morality. And you probably remember something along that lines. At the time, I took offense at that, but that's generally true. At least if you look back at history. Think about the laws that exist now. There's laws from the 30s. Nobody alive to remember that time anyway. There's a couple people that were alive but probably not remembering. But we all watch mobster gangster movies probably as kids. Do you remember what was the source of the mob's rise to power in the 30s? The law that prohibited alcohol across the country. And prohibition, no alcohol in the whole country, was the law of the land for about 10 years. And gangsters basically made their money by bootlegger, by being bootleggers. The law didn't prevent that from happening, I guess is the point I'm trying to make. Think about drug laws. Drug use, depending on what statistics you read, is at an all-time high. There's lots of laws against drug use, but people keep doing it anyway. Laws don't keep people from using drugs, for the most part. There's laws against prostitution. You can go down the line of all the laws, and I'm not saying that these laws are bad ideas, there shouldn't be laws about them, that maybe there's not even some good that comes out of them, just that they haven't been effective at eliminating the problem. Think about all of those things. What's the real solution to alcohol abuse and drug use and prostitution and the list that would go on and on? It's changing people's hearts, right? And think about what our mission is. Our mission is to change people's hearts by introducing them to Jesus Christ and His way of living. Lest we take too much comfort in laws changing, political action legislation can be reversed, sometimes just like that. 1993, we'd just come off of a, a, a political party that we thought was doing a lot of bad, had put some liberal judges in, so-called liberal and something called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed. But just a few years later, it was overturned by some judges. From the 40s and 50s, laws against homosexuality were basically in every state. By the 1990s, every single one of those had been overturned. Laws criminalizing marijuana, if you want to bring it to something closer... There's somewhere around 29 states that have legalized marijuana use, some for medical use, 
but there's a growing number that have legalized it for just recreational use. You know, if that's where we're putting our hope that the government's going to legislate morality, we've put our hope in the wrong place. And as we talked about, a constitutional amendment passed to end prohibition just 10 years after, after it had started. Here's the one thing that we can bank on. When we invest in somebody's heart, when we introduce them to the gospel, that their souls cannot be taken away. Their salvation can't be revoked or changed by anybody's laws. In John 10, it says, I will give them eternal life and they shall, that, they may, that they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hands. If we convert someone and they become followers of Christ under a Republican regime, guess what? They'll still be a Christian when the Democrat gets elected. Guess what? If our country somehow went and became communist, they'd still be a Christian. And all that outside of political involvement by the church, our mission is about people's souls. Romans 8. Again, in your mind, think about the social conditions that Christians were under when the book of Romans was written. It was written to people that lived in the capital of the most powerful country in the world. It was the center of all the government power. It was the center of terrible immorality. Immorality that we can't even imagine. And here's what Paul told the Romans. Because he was convincing them, trying to make sure they understood their hope was not in the government. The government wasn't going to help them, but also that it couldn't take away what they had. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is greater than any government authority, any worldly authority. And that's where we need to place our hope. That's where we can find our comfort and our peace. It can't be taken away from us by governmental things. So what about the individual Christian? We've talked about the church and what our mission is. There's no scriptural prohibition on individual participation in the political process. Think about politics in the United States. It could be a school board member, county commissioner, mayor. A lot of times we think about it just being presidents and higher-ranking officials, but there's no scriptural prohibition even working for the government. Here's what's a little bit ironic when you think about it. In Matthew 8, Christ commends a centurion for being fair and just. Think about the government he was working for. He is working for the most evil government that had ever existed, probably since and before. He didn't say, go quit your job and don't work for him. 
he told him to, to do what was right. In Romans 16, Erastus was a treasurer in the government. The Ethiopian eunuch, he was a high-ranking government official. Cornelius was a centurion, a, uh, a member of the army. He didn't tell any of them to go quit what they were doing. He told them to, to live godly principles uh, in whatever they were doing. Some might even argue since we're a democracy, respect for the government may mean some form of participation. You know, over the years, there have been a number of you that were on school boards. Technically, that's political. And probably one of the most thankless jobs that anybody could do. There's a lot of things that, that fall under that category. We've had county commissioners. We've had other so-called politicians There's no scriptural prohibition on that. What we're told is to live right and treat people right. So is it okay to do those things? And I would encourage you to read the Bible and make your determination like you would a lot of things. There's a lot of things that there's no direct scripture in the Bible that says do this or don't do that. That maybe they're okay on their surface, but to... Go back and look at your motive and your priority that you're placing on it. We have to be honest about why we want to be involved politically. Here's some good motives. Protect and help our fellow man. Improve our nation. Exert a Christian influence. Some bad motives. Seems like more and more politicians do it for prestige and power. They want their name out there. They want to be on TV. If you're seeking to be involved, make sure that you exemplify these types of characteristics. Blessed are the meek. In Matthew 23, he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. 1 Corinthians 10, let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. In Philippians 2, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Aren't those good things to judge all of our decisions by? Is that the way that we look at the world? If we're going to participate, we've got to have things in the right priority. And we've talked about that over and over over the years, that priority are very easy to get out of whack. Because even things that we're supposed to do can become wrong if you do them in the wrong priority. Think about somebody who's a workaholic. We're commanded to work and take care of our family, but we can all find examples of people that go to the extreme because they got it the wrong priority. They thought that working, making money was the most important thing you could do. The same is true for political involvement. When it consumes us and detracts from our mission to save soul, it becomes wrong. The political season is coming up. We're going to hear advertisements over and over and over. We're going to get stirred up if we're not careful. And that only takes away from our mission. Remember, we're not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. As easy as it is to do, we have to fight that temptation. Those things are temporary. As it ends in verse 21, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where our mind spends all its time, that's where our priorities are. In Colossians 3 and 1, seek those things 
which are above. In Matthew 6 and 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Over and over in the Bible, it tells us our priority should be on spiritual things. Here's what's interesting. I think I've made the point. We don't even know what persecution is. We anticipate what it is in our minds. Sometimes we have really good imagination. It seems like we all imagine the worst thing that can happen a lot better than we imagine the best thing that can happen. That's where our minds tend to go. We can conjure up all sorts of things that if the government continues on the trek it's on, in three years it's going to be worse than it's ever been, or five years, or 15 years. But guess what? Years ago, Jesus said we're going to be persecuted. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We're promised that that will happen. 2 Timothy 3, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You know, from a young age, when you do what's right, people make fun of you, right? But yet, sometimes we spend so much time and energy trying to avoid persecution. A good example of that in Acts 4 and verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord God, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and sea and all that in them is, who by thy mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined for to be done." And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. So they had just gotten out of jail. They're praying to God. They've had a preface in their prayer. And here's the point of what they prayed for. Now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants. Not that it'll go away. That's what I find very interesting. That with all boldness, boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders might be done by the name of the holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. As we think about what they did pray for, think about what they didn't do. They didn't hire a lobbyist. You know, that's a relatively recent phenomenon. If I remember right, in the mid-70s, I was a kid. That was when what was called the moral majority got into politics. Under the guise that morality needed to be spoken up for, not a bad goal, but they became a lobbying firm. And you can read their history of the ups and downs and the corruption that came to that organization They didn't circulate a petition. The Christians didn't talk about how to get the Romans to prevent the Jews from discriminating against them. They didn't make a prayer to God for changing the government. All of the things that sometimes we want the pain to stop, their prayer was simply for boldness to speak the word of God. 
And I think that's a great example for us. We need to make sure they, we have the right perspective. Just a few verses later, they got let go. And it says, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's where the real rejoicing, that's where we can find success. Our definition of success needs to be, look, sometimes our definition of success is nobody's giving us a hard time anymore. Their definition of success was because I'm doing what's right, I'm being persecuted for it. It seems contrary to what we would normally think, but that's the example that we're given. Persecution strengthens the church. In Acts 8 and 1, they were persecuted, and guess what? They were scattered all around the known world, and they went around preaching the gospel, and more people heard about it. So as we think about all these things, I appreciate your good attention. I hope you will consider these things. When I was young and 18 and just out of a, a high school government class, maybe you're uh, idealistic and you think that Political involvement can change the world. And as I get older and I look at people older than me, sometimes that optimism and idealism turns into pessimism. And what I hope is that no matter where you find yourself in that range, that you can go back to the Bible. See the Bible's insight, its instruction, and where our priorities should be. What did the Bible say and not say about political involvement by the church? It does say this, the church should abstain from political involvement. Political involvement is not an effective method of carrying out our mission. Hopefully you'll think about your priorities and your motivation if you decide to be politically active. I hope you'll consider these things. I hope that when you're tempted to think how bad the government is and to murmur and complain, that you'll remember all those scriptures about being in subjection about praying for our leaders, about hoping and praying that you will have the, the courage to stand up when people are against you. That's our mission. That's our goal. If you've been taught previously and you would like to be baptized, we would be glad to assist you with that this morning. If there's anyone here that would like the assistance of the church through prayer, we invite you to come too while we stand and sing.